What's that place you've always wanted to try? While well, you're there, sharing plates with just one bite. Or on second thought, maybe not sharing. It's that good. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. But then what? Well, radio has been called theater of the mind. So let's tell a story with sound effects. <laughs> Wow, it's like I was in the story. Almost makes me forget this was supposed to be about saving big with Progressive. <laughs> Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Have you ever had a moment in your life or moments where you have tried to swim upstream when everyone else was going down? When you've had an idea that was very different from what everyone else was following. Those moments can be difficult and lonely when you're trying to make change happen. But they can also be a wonderful, wonderful time of growing yourself and of doing something that's really meaningful. Today's guest on Dr. D's Social Network is Aaron Burnett. Aaron's an awesome guy who's running an incredible organization that is leading with love and kindness and grace, something we certainly don't have enough of in our businesses. Why do we have to run business the conventional way? Why is there a domination or winning or creating a sense of competition to dominate each other? Why can't it be about love? Today we talk with Aaron about those things and much, much more. Ladies and gentlemen, Aaron Burnett. Hey, Aaron. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, um, which you just recently mentioned to me, was about the Joy Fund. One, that's an amazing idea. I would love to hear more about that. Sure. Yeah, thanks. Um, so again, the, the notion of the Joy Fund comes from this idea that we want to make our values habits. And uh, that we want to remind people that uh, it is worth investing in joy, that they have to chase it. We have to pursue it. We have to remind ourselves to go after it. We want folks to know one another as well deeply enough that uh, they uh, know how to create joy for other people. And we want them to experience the sense of personal agency satisfaction and joy that comes from having made someone else feel good. Uh, and so uh, would you like me to, to go over the joy fund again or? Yeah, that'd be great. The $50 a month, right? That you said that they get. I mean, that's an yeah. amazing idea. So every employee here gets $50 a month to spend in any way they like, except that uh, they have to spend it in a way that delivers joy to a team member. They can save it up month over month and spend it for something big. They can pool together with other people uh, and buy something big in a single month uh, as a team. But again, it has to deliver joy for other people. So again, you know, uh, in order for me, if I'm an employee and I'm working with you, in order for me to deliver joy to you, I have to know you well enough to know what brings you joy. And then I get to deliver that to you. I get to see the impact I have on you uh, and the pleasure that comes from that. And I am 
reminded on a monthly basis how healthy, how soulfully good it is to make other people feel good. And that helps to make that core value for us a habit. And it hopefully means that we bring that into uh, every interaction that we have, certainly with our clients and hopefully with other people in our lives as well. So how do you get people to know them, know each other uh, better as they're making these decisions to um, use their money from the joy fund? What are some things that you do to facilitate that? Sure. We work pretty hard, pretty deeply and pretty intensely on knowing each other very, very well. Um, we work very intensely on team building, except that team building is a really inadequate term for what we do. Uh, for each of our practice areas, so each of our teams, we go through a process uh, that is based on a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Uh, and this is a, a book written by a fellow named Patrick Lencioni, and we've used a bunch of his books. And this one in particular, we found, found to be uh, super helpful. We combine uh, the work that we do in that book, which I'll describe in a second, with uh, a couple of other things. Uh, disc profiles for every employee and what's called a saboteur assessment. We let people know, even in the interview process, hey, we're interested in a lot more than your skills. We're interested in who you are as a human being, what makes you tick, what brings you joy. We hire for people who have passions outside of work, uh, who have care for other people and have put that care into practice by serving others. And then we get to know them deeply when they come here. So I can describe what we do through this process. Um, are you familiar with disc profiles? I am. I've, uh, I actually have one up in my office that I've done. So. Great. So kind of a, a dispositional assessment. Uh, it is a neutral assessment in the main of people's personalities, their strengths and personality type. And that gives us a sense of who they are. It also allows us to understand uh, the interplay uh, among their personality type and other team members uh, in their practice area and in the company overall. A saboteur assessment takes another look at personality type and uh, kind of turns it on your head. Uh, if a disc profile shows you your strengths in the main and your attributes, a saboteur assessment says, okay, these are your strengths. Here's how those strengths could get in your way under stress. Mm. So we have, have these two pieces of information that we have found to be incredibly accurate, like on the nose. Uh, and then we go through this process of reading a book together called Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And uh, the end activity in reading that book, which goes through an allegorical account of uh, a corporate team and the ways in which they attempt to work together and struggle and how they finally come to resolution, is that we all take a survey. And the survey assesses how we think our team members are doing with regard to these areas of dysfunction. And these areas of dysfunction are fundamental areas of relationship and dysfunction, trust and accountability and focusing on high performance and all these different things. All of that's great. That's all diagnostic. Where the real value and the heavy lifting comes in is that we then get together as a team and we spend, usually it's two to two and a half days, uh, not necessarily in a row. We'll spend one day, one month, and another day the next month going deeply through all of the results uh, and getting to know one another in uh, ways that require authenticity and vulnerability that almost always have to do with um, 
who we are, how we were raised, uh, things that have happened to us that are good and bad. And it, it's almost a requirement in building a team here that you be prepared, not just prepared to, that you be enthusiastic about doing that work. And so in doing that work, we get to know one another quite deeply. And if you don't know through that process what brings someone else joy, it's a pretty short step to observing what brings them joy and discerning what brings them joy over time as you work with them. There's one other thing that we do that uh, is really helpful in learning what your teammates, what brings your teammates joy and what brings clients joy and other people in uh, your life in general. And that is an approach called enlightened hospitality. Uh, and this approach originated in uh, the restaurants and hospitality uh, industries, uh, most notably with a guy named Danny Meyer, who has a, a, a bunch of New York restaurants and has been quite successful. And the, the thing that has made him so successful, and by successful, I mean uh, in the New York restaurant scene, where I think 90% of all restaurants fail within the first 18 months or so, he's operated for about 25 years, I believe has... 15 or 16 restaurants. And in all of those 25 years, only two have closed. He also is the founder of Shake Shack, which is based on this same model of enlightened right. hospitality. And, and the notion of enlightened hospitality is that, uh, in, that I'm focused on serving other people in a way that specifically brings them delight, brings them joy, that I seek to anticipate needs and that I am not just delivering food or delivering a dining experience. I'm looking to elevate every experience through very careful attention to uh, specific needs, wants, preferences that I know will make a difference for other people. And at the heart of this is the notion that every person who comes in contact with a staff member at these restaurants should feel known and should feel cared for. And what we've done here is to take that and say, we really love that idea. We think that it should be more powerful and more audacious. So our publicly espoused goal here is that every employee at Wheelhouse feels known and feels loved by their team members. And in pursuing those things, which are unconventional and audacious for any corporate environment, we pay very close attention to what makes people feel good around us, what brings them joy, and then we act on. Wonderful, completely wonderful. I wonder why there hasn't been as much of a, sh a shift to this as uh, I think as many of us like yourself, we seem in very much alignment. There's still a lot of conventional thinking to businesses and the money at all costs and domination of, of the competition and things of that nature. Um, why do you think that still exists even though we may know better? that we need to care about our people and really spend time doing that. Yeah. I've been thinking a, a lot about this uh, over the past few years, but in particular over the past few weeks. Um, and I think at root, it has to do with how malleable people are, how willing we are to accept conventional wisdom. Um, I was initially, you step into a context that's unfamiliar. Uh, I didn't come from a white collar family. My family's pretty thoroughly blue collar. So in moving into a big corporation, um, I initially just accepted, oh, these are the rules of this situation. This is how people behave. This is what's expected from me. 
I guess this is just what we do. And it takes a, a certain type of person and a certain degree of experience and uh, a certain willingness to be heretical to challenge that kind of conventional thinking um, and to risk being seen to be foolish. I can imagine that for a lot of people, it sounds absolutely Pollyanna and foolish that I would say that people at Wheelhouse should feel known and loved. Uh, I would imagine there are a lot of people out there who think love has no place in the workplace. Um, and I, I don't. I feel passionately that it belongs in the workplace just in the same way that it belongs everywhere else. Yeah. But yeah. again, I think it comes down to conventional thinking. I mean, we're and our acceptance of conventions. Uh, we're both speaking to one another from Washington State. I'm in Seattle. Uh, we're in our fifth day of, of protests over racial inequity and police brutality. And I've been thinking a lot about that and why it is that police brutality is such an issue decades and decades and decades on I mean, why it was ever an issue, why it's still an issue uh, now is unfathomable to me uh, and how it's been institutionalized, apparently, in police organizations. And what I keep thinking is about the way that people accept the conventions of the organizations that they join. It seems to me that this is systemic. It's a systemic problem. Yes. And the way that it's systemic is that Individuals, maybe individuals who are good-hearted, who want to do the right thing, join an organization that has a certain set of conventions and a certain history and set of expectations that are likely implicit in most instances, and they just accept them. And we end up with the same situation year after year. It's hard for me to believe that so many people would have malice in their hearts and that it's pure malice that perpetuates what we see. I think it's beyond that. I think that it's an acceptance of convention. You have to be willing to look foolish uh, or be shouted down to challenge convention. I totally agree with that. I, I've had many conversations about this, and you know, as an as an African American man, and seeing all this going on, and and my rise through unconventional um, leadership in businesses that I've been a part of, running and executive roles, um, you certainly meet. I have met a lot of resistance um, from others who are unwilling to move from the conventional point of view. It's like, this is the wave. This is the, the current that is happening. And it's very difficult to swim against that current. Right. Um, and people feel they're fearful of the, the outcome of swimming in a different direction yeah. and how they may be perceived and how they, people will look at them. But the truth is, I feel that you, you have to have people who are willing to do that and accept the consequences of it. In order for things to move in a different direction. Yeah. I absolutely agree. And I think that, that you hit on the key word, and that is they're fearful. Yeah, completely. And it's, you have to diagnose, what is the fear behind it? That people will think that you're silly, that that love is ridiculous, 
in a workplace, I have championed that for the past 15 years in running things is love is a huge part of success in business, a huge yeah. part. But then you're fighting a machine where people say, leave that. You're not a human being at work. Leave that at home. Be somebody else. And I never understood that. I never understood how I could be less than human at work and I could become transformed into this different robotic person that you're asking me to be when I can't separate that. I am who I am. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in a similar vein, I've never understood the notion of uh, work-life separation. I, I agree with right. you, but we all work with our minds and I don't have a part of my mind that I bring to work and I leave the rest at home and then I swap them out as I head out the door. Um, and so we, we expect everyone to come to work with everything and to be honest about that and to, then we, we need to be accommodating of who people are in their entirety and support that. And what is, and what's also interesting, I think, and on top of that, the conventional aspect is I, I have struggled with how to deal with this. I really have Aaron, but it's sometimes when people see an organization that has created a lot of revenue or is deemed to be very successful and that although the culture is extremely toxic or run by people who don't have these values, it feels like it's, you're like, well, okay, they made people look at go, well, at least they're making a lot of money. That's successful. We don't look at, well, just because you made a lot of money doesn't mean you're doing the right thing. Right. And I think we don't think about things that way. We just think they made a lot of money. They must be great. They must be amazing people. We don't separate and say, just because you've made a lot doesn't mean you're good at taking care of people. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I've, so earlier we were talking about the cost of, of yes. values. I'm 100% certain that I have made less money because I've wanted to invest in a values-driven and values-centered culture. I am 100% at peace with that. When I see other people who've made a lot of money and they've left wreckage in their wake, there's no part of me that wants that. And one of the things that I wanted to explore and prove for myself in creating this company is whether you could be successful and you could leave whole, uh, healthy people in your wake who've been bettered by the experience of working with you. That's the legacy that I'm trying to go for, um, is a whole bunch of people who've worked here and are better for it. Um, not, not just professionally better for it, but better as people because of their experience working here. And to me, you know, coming back to the notion of, of love, love is such a huge part of that. As I have reflected on a lot of the worst behaviors that you might see in the workplace, the way that people can become territorial or self-aggrandizing or uh, unkind to one another um, or ego-driven, all of those things to me at the deepest level come from fear that I'm not going to be valued, that I'm not seen as worthy, that my contribution isn't valued. But if people feel loved, and if they know that that love is for them as a person, not for just what they produce, 
then they can relax. And I have found that over time, so many of those behaviors, even if people come in the door with habits that came from other places that aren't consistent with the culture that we want here, they fall away as people find confidence in the culture and they understand that they're valued intrinsically. And we, we deliberately, we explicitly try to cultivate behaviors here that create that environment. So we talk about the byproducts of our values explicitly, that they should be kindness and gentleness and patience, and in particular, grace, that you should be able to mess up here and have grace from uh, employees and team members and leadership. And I have found that that grace for the ways that people mess up is one of the most powerful ways to express love. And it's one of the most powerful ways to make people feel secure. Completely. I mean, so you you speak in my language. I I think about uh, people who may listen to this, uh, CEOs and uh, people high up in organizations, people on frontline, whoever it may be. And the concept of what you're talking about, of the cost of this form of running a company is going to sound very foreign, turning down deals. I'm familiar with that. My business partner and I, we've turned down several deals. And the funny thing is it felt good actually to do it yeah. because it didn't align with our values and the type of um, relationship we wanted to have with the client. Maybe you could speak a little bit more about that because I think that's important. We think sometimes that we have to get every single cent that's put out to us. Like I need to grab as much revenue as possible. Talk a little bit about that, how you process that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll speak briefly to the way that it feels to turn deals down and then, and then <laughs> to processing. So I agree that it, it feels great. Um, and I think it feels great for a couple of reasons. One is that it reminds you of your freedom and sense of agency. Um, and that feels great to me. The other is that, that from a company culture perspective, it's really powerful. Uh, it, it's in those moments that it really costs to live to your values that, again, people uh, gain confidence that, oh, this is, this is real. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of my perspective on that. Um, I had an opportunity to sell my company last year. Actually, a, a lot of my employees don't know this. Uh, and it, it would have been great for me financially, but I would have been selling to – the acquisition wouldn't have been good for employees. It wouldn't have been good for the culture. It would have changed everything. It would have been about uh, driving financial performance post-acquisition. It would have been the opposite of what we're doing here. And when I got the offer, uh, my reaction surprised me. I felt sad when I got the offer. Mm. Um, And I felt sad because I I felt like, I didn't know why at first, but I reflected on, I thought, I realized I felt sad because I wasn't done yet. I don't feel like, We've done all we can here. Um, I have more I want to do. And I felt sad that I thought if I did it, it could break the culture. And then when I decided to just say no, I felt so free and light and excited. Um, And I was surprised by both of those things. So that's probably the most profound way in which it's felt really good to turn deals down. Uh, it, It also has felt good to turn client engagements down or to tell a client, look, we can't work with you. Um, Here are our expectations for our relationship 
with a client and here are expectations for the way that people here should be treated. And you have different expectations uh, and this isn't working. We, we call this, we have a name for this. It's telling the kind truth. And it's, you're telling somebody the truth that you're not saying you're a horrible person or right. uh, you know, you're toxic. They're working in a context that seems to work for them. It, it's just that the interplay of that context and our context doesn't work. But I'll tell you the, the really surprising and delightful and heartening result that we sometimes see in doing this. And that is that we had a client like this last year, um, super punishing in interactions. And there was one particular uh, C-level executive on their side who just could not be satisfied, was negative, critical to people here. Uh, we started to have meetings where people would get off the phone and would cry or they would feel anxious about the next conversation. And so as a leadership team, we decided, nope, that's it. It's not worth it. And this is a big client for us, um, quite a lot of revenue. Um, we decided we've got to tell them we can't work with them anymore. And so uh, one of our uh, senior execs got on the phone and said, we can't work with you and here are the reasons why we can't work with you and really focused on telling the truth with kindness and the, had the direct conversation with the C-level exec on the other side who said, I need to think about this and did and called back and said, you're right and I'm sorry. I had no idea. I can see that I've been behaving like this to many people in my life and I'm oh. going to change. And, wow. and they did. <laughs> like night and day change. And not just with us, we can see other things, social posts and that sort of thing. This is a changed person. And that doesn't happen all the time. But again, it's that notion of Kindness and grace, those things married together can have a profound impact on people. That's incredible. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, that's actually mind blowing. And I think people need to hear that because I think there is a swell of kind of the whole people over profits aspect and thing. And it feels like we're trying to turn a corner in so many things in the world. We're sometimes the chaos and the volatility is part of the, moving forward in things. It's messy to move forward in many times in life. But it's there's a lot of hope in what you just said that somebody could take something very constructive and you're kind in how you provided that truth and that they would say, you're right. And they weren't defensive and they weren't, you know, felt backed into a corner and like, hey, forget this. I don't need you. Like it's that's a beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah. Was, I was so impressed with this person and just amazed at what happened. And, and as you said, just hopeful and optimistic because of it. Now, do you ever have anybody that on the other side of the equation that they're in this type of environment and they have a difficult time accepting love and accepting these things? Because uh, I've dealt with that for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This place isn't for everybody. Uh, we've gotten better and better at hiring. Um, yeah. We had a, a, a pretty solid process that you know screens first for values fit and then uses these series of diagnostics and has a, a, a pretty intense uh, sort of subject matter interview in the middle. And then I bring up the rear. So I feel like we're much better at hiring now, but we have hired folks through the years who just as you suggest, 
have gotten here and thought this, not only do they have a hard time with it, uh, they will eventually say in some instances, this just makes no sense to me. Um, mm. We had one person who worked with us for about a year and it was an odd fit from the start, but I really like, I like quirky people and everybody here is quirky. We are unified in uh, the way that we align around our values and in uh, our passion for our work and intrinsic motivation and some other core characteristics. But otherwise, this is a really diverse group of people, which I love, adds to the interest. And so I have all the time in the world for people who are different than me and quirky. So initially it was thought, well, this person's just quirky. But eventually it became clear, no, this person's super prickly and uh, makes people around them uncomfortable and is really just focused on doing the work and nothing else, doesn't seem to buy into the notion of generosity days or joy fund or any of these cultural touchstones that we have. And I spent a lot of time talking with them, trying to understand what the disconnect was. And finally, we got to a place in kind of the penultimate conversation. So before we took an action, uh, but close to it, where they just said, listen, I don't understand why we care so much about how happy people are or how they're feeling or any of that stuff. Can't we just do the work and I can get paid and go home? And, and it just clicked. Oh, okay. I mean, yes, you can somewhere else, uh, <laughs> but not here. And so, you know, I, the next conversation was a long conversation to say, listen, I think we can both see that this is not a good fit. Uh, it, we don't make sense to you and you're not really making sense to us. And you should be in a place that more closely aligns with just the way you're wired and how you want to behave. Uh, so yes, that, that happens. This place is not for everyone. Um, it does not make sense to everyone. Which is interesting because I know it's something I struggled with personally for a while. And that, and I was like, why don't you want to be loved and have kindness and care? And it feels obvious to the person who's putting that out and who is saying this is important. And you feel like that's a human thing. You should want to feel like somebody cares about you beyond just your contribution to work. Right. But I've learned that there, there are definitely people who just, they just want to clock in and clock out. They, they don't want to participate in that. And though I understand it, it still saddens me to this day. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's just because people are guarded, I think, and and don't want to be vulnerable. Sometimes we can overcome that over time, and sometimes they're just not wired that way. Yeah, the, we do. We do give people quite a lot of time to settle in, though, um, and to get used to the culture. Because even if people come in with enthusiasm for our values and our culture, almost everybody's worked somewhere else that's not like this. Of course. And, and they come in with habits and expectations uh, and sensitivities and defenses that are uh, related to their work history and not what's here. And so we, we tend to talk about kind of a six-month break-in period uh, where people aren't going to believe that it's real for the first six months. And we just kind of know that. Any new employee is going to be cautiously optimistic, but still kind of guarded. It's not really fair to expect them to be bought in in that first six months. It just takes that time for people to decide, oh, I guess this is real. And quite often it takes 
that first instance where grace is required, something went wrong. And now they get to see what happens when something goes wrong. And um, when nobody gets screamed at and nobody gets fired because they made a mistake and they're still cared for and still loved, that for a lot of people tends to be the moment that they think, oh, well, this is different and this is real and this is something that maybe I can put my weight down on. What's really interesting is if you look at this, you know, there's so many microcosms and things we do to larger society. You know, I've had so many people ask me about, you know, what they can do to help and how do I understand what's going on? And I look at it in many different ways. I mean, you look at it in work, if you're at an employer who constantly beat down your psyche and your feelings of goodness and your worth and your goodness, then at some point you don't even need that destroyer of your psyche around to start destroying yourself. Yeah, you'll do it yourself. The oppressor can be removed and you will oppress yourself. Yeah. And that is what I think I've been trying to tell people to learn about the culture of people in my, in my ethnicity over years. Is it doesn't, there's been a tremendous amount of oppression and you don't need the oppressor to have oppression to continue to happen. And that, and that person becomes cyclical for that. For that, it's a much larger thing. But I also looked at that in work when, with people, is that they're coming to you sometimes completely destroyed mentally from past employers, and you're, and they're destroyed. And in a sense, they almost they their confidence is so destroyed that they they have begun the process of destroying and unbelieving their own feelings of worth, yeah. and. And so you're, you're, you're really like teaching them again how to believe in themselves again. Yeah, that's the goal. And that, that has played out here a number of times uh, with some regularity. And sometimes it takes a really long time. Yeah. Um, one of the most fantastic people I work with, I think probably didn't, didn't trust me for, I didn't trust the culture for probably three and a half, four years. Yeah. Took a long time. Yeah. I think it's the willingness to take that time and, and just all you can do is be in a, is to, is to be the example. You could say all these things, but you have to live it on a regular basis and they have yeah. to see that and then be in different situations where the culture you've created is real, becomes real. Like, Oh, this Aaron did this was the exact opposite. What my past employer used to do to me all the time. Wait a minute. Right. Is this true? That's what you're saying. Is this, can this be true? Can I actually be treated this way? Yeah. I think even more important than whether I did something or reacted in a particular way is whether others in the organization also react in the way that is consistent with our values. Because if it's just me, if I'm, if I'm everything in the culture, if I'm the touchstone, I'm the right. person that they're looking to, that's a different thing. That's a weird cult of personality. But what, what I've focused on here, what we tried to do is, is build cultural resiliency so that everyone in the company feels agency to be generous, to treat people in these ways, to exercise grace. And then uh, we try to reinforce that. And in, in the instances where things don't go right, because we talk about our values as this is the way that we want to be, but our values don't exist so that we do everything perfectly. Our values exist so that we can find the way back when yeah. we end up in a place where, ah, this doesn't feel right. I think we made a mistake. We took a wrong turn. 
Uh, and I need everybody in the company to be able to do that, whether I'm in the room or not. No, it makes sense. I mean, you're building this community of people who feel a similar way. Do you, do you feel like that conventional structure or conventional mindset is slowly dissipating in our country and corporations, or do you feel that it's still really present? I think that it's dissipating. I have a hard time answering that, particularly, you know, right now where it feels like all sorts of things that I thought were true or, I just, <laughs> right. you know, right. speaking with certainty about very many things right now. Yeah. Um, I guess from our experience, there's enthusiasm for the way that we engage. Mm -hmm. Um there are a lot of digital marketing firms in the country and around the world. Lots of them are really good um, and have really smart people. We do too. It's a fool's errand to argue that uh, we're the smartest or the best in terms of you know the digital marketing that we can offer. We're really good. But what sets us apart is the experience of working with us. And that's what we really focus on and invest in. And the, the response that we get to that experience to the way that we care for clients, the way that we're generous with clients, the way that we behave in unconventional ways tells me that uh, there are more and more companies out there mm. that uh, are taking this to heart. Maybe not at an entirely corporate level, although I think that that's happening as well, but certainly the executives that we work with um, are drawn to this sort of engagement model, this kind of a culture. And we hear not infrequently, I wish I worked there. Uh, that's the mm. kind of place I would like to work. And that's, that's nice to hear. Oh, it's amazing to hear. I mean, that's incredible. Do you think it's like in your experience and, and what you could speak about and just in your experience is that the way you have conducted your business has uh, become an example to others in your space or maybe others in different industries. Have you seen evidence of that or what, tell me a little bit about that. Well, sort of yes and sort of no. Um, we've been pretty quiet. We haven't been very public. In fact, I've just started to speak publicly about our culture. Um, I, prior to starting to engage in a, a little bit of uh, interviews and, and podcasts like this, I'd only given two public talks about our culture uh, in prior years. We'd been growing so quickly uh, that really just kind of keeping our hands around what was happening in terms of growth and managing new employees and that sort of thing occupied all of our time. Um, but what I, I have seen, and so, you know, we're not necessarily one of those corporate touchstones that uh, publicizes its culture uh, super actively and aggressively and is followed by tens of thousands because we really haven't done that previously. We're starting to do it now. What I have seen, though, is that people who leave Wheelhouse, and this is, this is an explicit goal that we declared a few years ago, that people who come through Wheelhouse, because it's typical in an agency that people would stay two, maybe three years, and then uh, move, not usually to another agency, but to another company, we want people who leave Wheelhouse to take the culture with them and to bring it to the new place that they work. And we absolutely have seen that, that people step into other workplaces with expectations of how people should be treated. And if their managers 
with habits that they developed here for how to care for their team members. Um, and, and that's been heartening. One of the reasons that I'm starting to talk publicly, though, is that I, I would like more people to know how we do things here, how it's worked well, uh, you know, if they're interested, how we've messed up along the way uh, and what we've done to course correct and how that's turned out. Uh, because I think it has, has value. We've been in business 10 years now. We've learned some things in the decade. Do you think that a lot of the conventional thinking to the corporate structure and how you do business is a symptom of just how things have been done in the past, or maybe people in charge of things and managers, it's just, they're just mimicking what they've learned over time or what has been popular. Like you mentioned, Gordon Gecko and, and all that stuff. And and I remember watching different movies about that and just the, the desire for more and, you know, endless wealth and all that. Is it just a aspect of that's what people are exposed to? And if you expose them to a different thing and make them think that there'll be a different point of view? Yeah, I think that there is a lot of truth to that. I, I think, again, it's this notion of acceptance of convention. This is just the way that things have been done. You step into particularly a large company you step into a large system with all sorts of people around you who behave in this way and mm -hmm. you accept as a social animal that, oh, this is in this society, in this particular uh, corporate right. society, I behave in this way. And that takes, uh, that takes quite a powerful catalyst to change at a corporate level. I think you can be more successful at um, staging insurrections at you know, a team level or yeah. division and, and changing things. But I also think that, that it comes back to something else we talked about earlier, which is fear, fear of looking foolish, fear of being vulnerable. Um, it is much safer to just toe the line and do what other people do around you than it is to risk ridicule yeah. um, and shame by suggesting something that simply isn't done here or requires people to be more authentic, more open, uh, more emotional and vulnerable. Totally. I think in many ways, if you're in a, you're an organization and you're just kind of swimming upstream with everybody and you're like, I just want to fit in with the group and kind of be invisible and just put my head down. And right. I, I mean, I get that. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying I don't get that, but I also think it just takes a lot to, 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 to go on the other direction, but it's, it's necessary. It's not like, it's like kind of good. It's like, you have to do it. Somebody has to step up. Yeah. And when they see them say this must change as much like you and the people that in your company speaking out about, you know, what your culture is and, and spreading that somebody has to do that. Yeah. If not, you're just seeding your own thing and going, well, we're good over here. Yeah. You know, I also think that for most of us, and, and this was certainly my case, you step into the corporate world and I assumed that everything had been figured out, that the people who are leading these big corporations or are, have developed corporate cultures, that, that uh, there's kind of a handbook that everybody follows. There are, there's uh, conventional wisdom and it, it isn't just convention. It, it is wisdom. There's some wisdom there. There's a reason things are done this way and right. that, that people who are more senior than me have figured all of this out. And it took me a long time to figure out, and this was part of what happened to me when I was promoted so quickly, to figure out, oh, actually the people who are in charge, they don't have it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> 
everybody's just doing a different version of kind of muddling through and hoping nobody calls them out or figures out that <laughs> they don't know everything. And so, you know, part of what I try to do here is I try to diffuse that by saying, listen, just right off the top, everybody should know. I don't always know what I'm doing and uh, we're figuring this out together and it would be great if you would help me. Uh, don't look to me as the person who's got all this figured out. Yeah. I have certain ideas and notions and some things are better tested than others, but uh, expect me to mess up. I think it's a very, the thing you're talking about is one of the most jarring things that ever happened to me moving up in an executive role in a company in my past was seeing people at a certain space and you look and you you hear the the title of somebody, vice president, president, you know, whatever of this thing, these big things in your mind, you, you say, oh man, this, this person is this all knowing person of this position. And then when yeah. you, you rise to a similar or equal position and you start discovering that that person doesn't know as much as you think they do. Right. And in some instances you start discovering, wait a minute, why are they here? <laughs> you know, like you start questioning, like, wait, is, is this the right person or all of a sudden in some ways in yourself, you're thinking, wait a minute, do I feel more competent than the person who's been doing this for so many years? Yeah. Why am I listening to this level of thing when it doesn't make sense? Like that was hard for me to realize yeah. that. And it messed up my whole feeling about a lot of things too, because I was like, you know, I, I it, it, it just, it perplexed me in a yeah. sense, you know? I think it also could be a source for a lot of humility because to me, what I, what I sort of took from it is that pretty much everybody walking around worries at a different point that they're a fraud. Right. Uh, everybody walks around with a different version of imposter syndrome, syndrome except profound narcissists and psychopaths. Right. Uh, right. That they've got their own issues. Right. But the, the rest of us walk around thinking, you know, at this moment in time, I feel like I have no business having this job or doing this project or being in this role. And to realize that everybody else is kind of grappling with the same thing uh, and that our, our role really is to kind of help each other to figure things out together and not to look to one person as the source of legitimacy or truth or expertise. Yes or wisdom. But you're right. I mean, even so in my company, even with, with my culture, I had this conversation earlier this morning with somebody on the leadership team. Although we clearly have a culture where anyone can raise a topic um, and everyone's voice, we've, we've said explicitly and demonstrated everyone's voice deserves to be heard. And we've created mechanisms to make that true. Whether you want to speak publicly or you want to send an email or you want to respond to a weekly employee survey, you will be heard. So people know that. And yet there are uh, a frequent number of situations in which people still fall back on a preconceived notion of hierarchical leadership. Where in this situation, oh, the leadership team should uh, figure that out. And maybe that's true, uh, but it's more likely true that some group of us that might include somebody from the leadership team and a bunch of people not on the leadership team would be best to figure that out. And the voices of the people not on the leadership team might be the most important voices. 
But the people just fall back on this conventional notion, oh, you've got that title, you're in this role, and so uh, you necessarily have the wisdom and perspective to sort that out on your own, and I don't have a voice there. Yeah. I mean, these are all incredibly insightful and kind. And, you know, it's what I want to thank you for, Aaron, and your team and your group is um, for so many years, for me and in, in running the businesses that I've had and I'm doing, sometimes you feel alone when you have this approach to caring about employees. I mean, I know I have before and my business partner has, and it's good to know that it's happening in other places and that there are people and organizations that truly care about love and kindness and grace with employees. Thank you and your team for that. I appreciate that. And I thank you for speaking today with me on here about it. Thank you very much for the conversation. It was, it was really a delight. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. And we will be in touch for sure. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone. At Jiffy Lube, it's our job to keep you moving. With a full range of services from oil changes and tire rotations to filters, wipers, and more, we've got what your car needs right when you need it. So you're ready for whatever's next. Putting you in the driver's seat of car care? That's a job for Jiffy. For international money transfers at your fingertips, choose Western Union, the fast and reliable way to send money to loved ones. Plus, new customers can enjoy a $0 transfer fee until October 31st when sending money online. Visit westernunion.com or download their app to get started today. Services offered by Western Union Financial Services, Inc., NMLS 906983 or Western Union International Services, LLC, NMLS 906985. Terms apply. FX gains apply.